Hello and welcome to the Sam Ops Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service and various specialties. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Cuevas. Dr. Cuevas is an Army Reserve anesthesiologist and staff anesthesiologist at Marion General Hospital in Ohio. He was also a prior Air Force Health Services Administrative Officer prior to attending medical school at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. He also happens to be my SAMOP specialty mentor that was established through the SAMOP's mentorship program. Now I'm excited to share his insights with the rest of the community today. So, Dr. Cuevas, welcome. Oh, well, thank, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, I'm uh, glad to hear from you. I guess that the way we start most of these podcasts anyways, is I just start with like getting a little bit of background so that, you know, everybody else who's listening kind of uh, knows who you are, or at least some foundation. So uh, you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, maybe where you were from, what med- we already know what med school you attended, because I kind of snitched on that yeah. one. Sure, but, sure. Uh, your residency, any family life, anything you would be willing to share, give us some foundation to work off of. Sure, sure. So uh, I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas. Um, I matriculated into the U.S. Air Force Academy, uh, where I graduated in 2008. I um, entered the Medical Service Corps, um, where I served as a healthcare administration officer. I was stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base here in Dayton, Ohio. I separated from active duty in 2011 and entered uh, Air Force Reserve Service uh, from 2011 through 2015. Uh, Concurrently with my reserve service, I entered um, into Ohio University for uh, medical school. In 2015, I graduated from medical school and at the same time left the Air Force Reserve. Um, I entered into the Army Reserve at that time. Uh, While concurrently uh, entering my residency program, I trained at a community program here in Columbus, Ohio at Ohio Health Doctors Hospital. I graduated in uh, 2019, um, and it's, it's um, after that, I've uh, worked as a general anesthesiologist with the Ohio Health System. I'm primarily based at Marion General Hospital, but work at a few other hospitals uh, in central Ohio. Um, with respect to my family, I do come from an Air Force family. My brother's a re- uh, retired sergeant, as is my father in the U.S. Air Force. Um, uh, my wife is a uh, ophthalmologist as well. She practices in the same vicinity with me in Central Ohio. Wow! So you've got a powerhouse there: ophthalmology, anesthesiology, all packed under one roof. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I guess. Oh, I guess you got a doorbell. <laughs> um, wait, I guess the next question for you is, is, so what made you kind of like make that transition from doing uh, medical service corps and the air force and then kind of transitioning, deciding to be a physician and then transferring into the army. So what was your thought process? Why sure. the transition? Well, uh, I'll, I'll have to answer those two things uh, separately. Um, for, with respect to healthcare administration, um, it's a kind of boring story, but to be honest with you, I never intent, my intent was never really to be a healthcare admin officer. Uh, if you talk to a lot of Air Force Academy graduates, we go there to fly airplanes, unfortunately. <laughs> um, 
my, my vision wasn't going to allow me to fly airplanes. And I was so petrified of being stuck in a missile silo somewhere. I looked at my options and um, I don't know, maybe short-sightedly, I, I decided to do healthcare administration. And, and I did love healthcare administration. There, there's a lot of benefits to it. And I, and I don't mean to disparage any of my colleagues that, that enable um, providers to uh, do what we do. But um, I don't know. I just wanted to, I thought healthcare was cool when I started doing healthcare admin. And then it's like, well, if, this, if I think healthcare is cool, why don't I go to the tip of the spear? And so um, I was an econ major at the Air Force Academy and I started, you know, at the hospital and it's like, well, you know, th this stuff is really great. Well, what can I do to maybe go to the tip of the spear? I actually ended up rounding out my degree at a community college in Dayton, Ohio. And that's what allowed me to finish up my prereqs. And I started shadowing at a hospital, uh, which is how I found, uh, which was actually my intro into osteopathic medicine. And uh, I ultimately decided to make that jump. And uh, so that's how I made the jump from uh, admin to clinical. Well, with respect to services, um, I guess the Big thing I'm going to say up front is healthcare is changing. Military healthcare is changing even more. When you look at DHA and if you look at what happens in the AOR, this idea of branch is is kind of borderline ridiculous because you know tri service takes care of tri service. The only time you're taking care of your own service is if there's really if you're at Fort Sill and there's literally no Navy people around. Otherwise, we take care of. Soldiers, airmen, seamen, I mean, they're all, they're all just beneficiaries. And uh, that's pretty much what drove me to uh, leave the Air Force. Um, the incentive structure uh, for specifically resident physicians um, it was significantly better in the Army. And again, for me, it was all about mission anyways. I was going to be an anesthesiologist at that point. I had matched. If I'm going to be an anesthesiologist, if I'm an AOR, it doesn't matter what, what suit's coming through. So I looked at my career opportunities, which I do believe on the reserve side are the best in the Army just because it's the biggest branch by far, and also the incentives. And it, um, it was enough for a guy who had been from an Air Force family, and at that point, four years at the Academy, seven years Army Reserve. And I was like, it was enough for me to... Well, I guess we all wear the same uniform literally these days. It was just changing. Now it, all it is is changing, changing the patch on the upper left, uh, upper left chest. Right. That makes sense. I, I mean, and that's that's kind of, or at least partially, the reason why I kind of like chose the army. Of course, the navy kind of uh, ignored me, but that's a whole different story and uh, related to me, not necessarily you. Um, well, so, and even then, that's a blessing in disguise and no disrespect to my Navy colleagues, but um, the Navy is probably the roughest for medical students. In terms of the match, at least, yeah, I was hearing that a lot of people end up at least doing their intern year and then doing a GMO tour. And I guess that there's, there's ups and downsides to that, I guess. I mean, because from, on one hand, I've heard that it's been a really great experience and a lot of people uh, wouldn't change anything about that. And then I guess that kind of depends on your goals then, whether that's like something you would prefer to do or not. No, I, I don't think anyone regrets doing a GMO tour, but I think you hit the nail on the head. Like what, at the same time, does that GMO tour get you to where you want it to be? And it, mm -hmm. it's tough because I do think there's a little bit of justification on people that go through that. Because again, like 
thankfully, um, officers, uh, soldiers, airmen, seamen, we're all, we try to make the best of any scenario. But the reality is, is if you went to medical school and you wanted to be a pediatrician, an intern, an orthopedic surgeon, and you're pulled away from that, you can justify it as, as well as you want. And because you're a professional, you're going to make the best of it. But the reality is that doesn't really fit into your goal of ultimately being an anesthesiologist or whatever that is. Right. Yeah, there are definitely some challenges there. And well, I mean, just like you spend enough time in the military, you kind of know how this works is there's kind of that needs of the military. So as much as you may want something, uh, sometimes uh, big army or big Navy or big air force is going to be like, uh, sorry, we kind of need you for this, that, or the other, but I, I guess kind of leaning into that next question is so, uh, other than family, uh, what's, were there, were there any other like motivating reasons for wanting to do the military? Um, I think some people are just drawn to it. I mean, at this point in my career, um, uh, I, well, I said this in a job, I recently got a new job in the army and I harped on this point, but I'm the kind of guy. So I signed up once at the academy. Um, when I, when I actually, I, I left in 2011, I could have just left clean. So I signed up again with the air force reserve. And then when I, when I transitioned from the air force to the army reserve, I signed up again. And again, each of those times I had no commitment. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say I, I wasn't compensated you know the first time I went to the academy I got there there were benefits but the, especially as a, when you look on the back end as a physician the, you don't do it for the benefits you do it because you want to do it um, mm-hmm. I love my country I love being able to serve um, as a reservist it, it's nice because uh, it allows me to have my cake and eat it too I get to serve my country and, and still have a thriving private practice um, so my, for me yeah, it's about service uh, I'd be lying. It's not a volunteer job. I am compensated, but that's not the driver for me. It's a, it's more about, it's what I want to do. If anything, <laughs> I joke with people uh, in my private practice. To me, it's like having a hobby. I'm, it's like being a boy scout on steroids. Um, I, I love <laughs> being, being able to, to do this stuff on the side and being able to serve my country. Yeah, I definitely can understand that because that, that is, uh, serious conversation. I think a lot of people are afraid to talk about money, especially as physicians. That's like considered a taboo thing to be uh, to openly discuss. And especially so when we talk about the military, the, the compensation is just not the same as it would be in the civilian sector. Granted, there are differences in what the practice looks like and there are um, pros and cons to it. But I, I think those things do need to be addressed and maybe don't get talked about nearly as much in helping people make decisions about uh, their career and whether they're going to do the military, whether they're going to stay in and stuff like that. So kind of walking into that next step, um, what kind of led you to choosing to be an anesthesiologist in particular? Well, um, my path is probably not unlike uh, many other uh, med students. Um, I thought I wanted to do something and then I rotated in it and I was like, well, I don't know anything about medicine. Um, again, and I don't mean to disparage my emergency medicine colleagues, but uh, my, uh, I was very naive. You know, I came from a very military background and I was like, I'll do emergency medicine because that's what we need in the field. And of course we do need emergency medicine field, but we actually, it turns out we need everything else too. So that's kind of a 
it's a dumb perspective to have it. Uh, yeah. But that was my thought at the time. And then, so I rotated in emergency medicine and emergency medicine needs the right personality for it. Uh, they really are the jack of all trades. Um, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And they're pulled in a lot of different directions. And um, a lot of it's a lot uh, just basic primary care. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the nature of the game. Uh, but that wasn't my passion. I liked the idea of the procedures. I like the intubating. I like the lines. And uh, because I like that, and I, I did some of that uh, during my ER rotations, and I rotated in anesthesia. And I saw that's what I got to do. Furthermore, I like the acuteness. And, you know, I see some really sick patients and even on relatively healthy patients, you know, the use of vasoactive medications, the, the uh, pharmacology, the physiology, the immediateness, um, the working with my hands, I, I really like that. And so I shifted away from emergency medicine to um, anesthesia, and uh, I've been really happy with it. It's a nice mix of procedures, but also uh, medicine. And that's why I do it. So what do you think uh, for prospective medical students thinking about anesthesiology? What do you think the, the right, uh, I don't want to say personality, but the, the right kind of person that fits into that specialty and will likely enjoy it? Like, what kind of person do you imagine that is? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, the first thing I, I talked about anesthesia, and again, I'm going to sound I'm, I'm like I'm taking back my own words because I, I got into it for procedures, but don't go into anesthesia for procedures. Um, anesthesia, anesthesiologists, um, the lay public will look at us like, oh, those are people that put people to sleep. It's like, well, yeah, of course we do that. That's the easy part, though. Anesthesiologists, the role of anesthesiologists in modern medicine, we are the perioperative and intraoperative physicians. We are the internists in the room. My job is to ideally get someone through their procedure comfortably, but more importantly, to get to make sure that patient is optimized for their procedure and can get through their procedure as safely as possible. Comfort, sleep, all that stuff. Hell, the reason I say we're not sleepy doctors, because if it's the safest thing, I will keep that patient awake. It is not about sleep, but that's what we get like portrayed as in, in, in the general public. And, and, but that, that, it's about what can I do to make sure that patient can get through this procedure safely. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that encompasses every single major organ system and the American public is even sicker and sicker. And that's great because I'm presented with challenges each and every day. But with that being said, we're not just, uh, well, I, I don't want to say not just an internist, but we don't just use our minds. We get to use our hands. I intubate central lines, A lines, peripheral nerve blocks, uh, neuraxial techniques with spinals and epidurals. I get to work with my hands. So I, I do get that nice mix of medicine and procedural skills. Uh, with respect to the right person, um, there, there's different types of personalities in this world. And I I can. I think it's a little frustrating when if someone was to say better versus worse, right? It's all about like what the right fit is. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 wrong. There are people. There is no best specialty in medicine. This idea of a best specialty is completely asinine. It's about what is the best specialty for you. I like to move very quickly. I like to act react quickly. That is not the best mindset for an actual like floor internist, you know, because they exist to look for zebras. You know, they're looking for that fit differential, and that really, really matters. Conversely, um, in anesthesia, 
if my blood pressure is 70 over 40, it is not appropriate for me to think about, well, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. The reality is you need to think about it, the top two diagnoses and treat both likely simultaneously. You need to be able to react. And it, if, someone wants to, if, if someone prefers to take their time and think a little slower, that's 100% fine. There's a lot of specialties for that. Um, those type of personalities don't like to be rushed in my um, experience. And if they are forced to make a decision very quickly, get uncomfortable. Those are the kind of people that probably wouldn't do well in this specialty. If you're okay with dealing with a potentially complex, you know, a lot of medicine is very gray, but you are forced to make a decision and you need to make a decision now. Not, two, not one second from now, you need to make a decision now. Patients can desaturate. You know, there's a, a pro, uh, public service announcement from the American Society of Anesthesiology and their, their entire thing is when seconds count. And unfortunately, my patients can de decompensate in seconds. So um, as aspiring medical students that are willing to come up to that challenge are willing to react in seconds to clinically challenging scenarios. Th those are, those, those are the, the people I think can thrive in this specialty. And if you're the kind of person that likes a little more time and doesn't like, uh, you know, was sat in the seventies and it being totally dependent on you. I mean, my wife, frankly, is a smarter physician out of both of us, uh, but she'd be a terrible anesthesiologist. And that's okay because I don't like eyeballs. <laughs> so it, is there anything that um, you don't like about the specialty or things that you find as drawbacks? You know, it, not everything is obviously roses and uh, oh, of course, um, everything positivity. So what, what, so, what kind of like negative things for you? Uh, the biggest, so... And near the end there, I actually considered primary care because um, I, in my head, because I, I, I was one of those guys, I didn't hate anything really, uh, but I know you couldn't do everything, but I was going to try. I was like, oh, what if I become an FP and I can be a GP and I can do some hospitalist work, I can do some urgent care, I can do some cosmetic stuff, I'll be all over the place. And um, I consider that because I think that, that would be cool. Because the idea of like treating a patient longitudinally still appeals to me. The episodic nature of what I do for a living bothers me still. Um, I see a patient for 15 minutes in pre-op. I will treat them. I will see, I will command as their uh, post-operative care for one to two hours. And so, you know, I, I don't build the type of relationship that I thought I would build when I became a physician. Um, you know, I, 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 I like, I like my patients. Uh, you know, that's the deal with me. I, I, I ask patients what they do for a living. I ask them about their kids, how long they've been married and things like that. I care about my patients. And uh, that part kind of sucks, but it's, uh, it's just kind of the nature of the game. And there, I guess there are some transitions, right? If you wanted to, I guess there's some fellowships that can kind of push you more that direction if you chose to. I guess like people talk about like pain medicine and stuff like that. Um, versus like, what are some of the other ones? There's pain. Uh, the only, the only, the only, uh, yeah, the only office-based one is going to be um, cr uh, chronic pain. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do critical care. The other, uh, the most common specialties in anesthesiology are going to be pediatrics, cardiothoracic, and chronic pain. And then on a lowering scale, critical care. Then you get into some of the smaller ones like OB and neuro.
Mm-hmm. Um, there's there there are some other problems with the critical or sorry um, chronic pain, but that's that's an entire discussion in a, in and of itself. And you should talk to the pain guys. <laughs> yeah. they, they have their own unique challenges. Gotcha. Takes a special I, a special person that will do that. Gotcha. I guess uh, kind of shifting gears here a little bit to uh, kind of focus in more on the military aspect. I was curious, uh, what does it look like for you as an anesthesiologist as uh, being reserved in the Army when you are activated or during your um, your weekend or your two weeks out of the year? What does that look like for your practice? Because I know it's kind of different uh, than, or at least for some specialties, it's kind of different in how they practice but regardless of like if you're an emergency medicine doc and stuff like that. Um, so this, it depends, which is not the answer you want, but the reality <laughs> is, it, 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 it very much depends on what kind of reservist you are. At least for my specialty, I would say the vast majority of anesthesiologists are AOC of 60 November, and we're going to be attached to, um, field hospitals. Now they, they, they change now, but the current terminology is a field hospital, yeah, so most of us that are uh, traditional reservists, we belong to a TPU, a troop program unit, um, one week in a month, two weeks a year. Um, your two weeks a year can be spent um, very variably. Uh, this year, my unit's going to Japan to kind of set up the hospital to pretend. Um, that being said, I'm not going. So, <laughs> um, But uh and, and honestly, on most weekends, um, well, we're supposed to lay out the actual truth. Uh, clinical training does not occur in the reserve. I mean, you go to your reserve unit, it's not a hospital, there's no patients, uh, especially for anesthesia. Um, we're great, but we have a lot of like a fancy tools and stuff, and you know that requires an operating room. And so most of your weekend is uh, making sure that you meet your other military requirements, which sounds like, oh, it's really, that's it. But when you think about it, active duty, you have um, your 20 to 25 days a month to fill all your military requirements for service. We get our, our 18 hours and um, they, fill, they, they figure out a way to fill those, those uh, sorry, 16 hours up. Um, but that's a traditional um, the reason I won't be going to Japan, um, I am transitioning from a traditional reservist to a position called a IMA, an Individual Mobilized Augmentee. Uh, that is a different kind of reservist. So um, traditional reservists fall under um, reserve units. And so there's actually separating, you know, there's on active duty, there's active duty unit, active duty soldiers, reserve unit, reserve soldiers, and IMAs are kind of hybrids. Uh, they're reserve, sol- reserve soldiers that work for active duty units, and they backfill. And so uh, for that role, instead of doing my weekends, a mo- one week in a month, two weeks a year, uh, I would actually backfill. Uh, and this uh, actual position is at Evans Army Community Hospital at Fort Carson, and I'll go there uh, for a few weeks a year to fulfill my reserve duty to help backfill active duty. Um, for those familiar with just traditional medical terminology, it's basically like doing locums. Gotcha. That actually sounds like a lot of fun just because you can kind of like uh, fluctuate or shift around and fill different spots and kind of get a variety of things that are going on. Oh, it's the best. That's why, it's, that's why, I, that's why I interviewed for it. Um, 
in my opinion, it's probably the best bank for the buck for the, um, at least for physicians. But again, to each their own, um, the, the benefit of the army is that it's big. So there's a lot of opportunities. The drawback is that it's big. And so to say like, this is how the opportunity is everywhere. This is not the case. Even mm -hmm. at a different field hospital, it's going to be very different. And there's a, and there's combat, there's FSTs. There's, you know, I work at a field hospital, which is formerly a cash. Uh, there, there's a lot of opportunities out there. Um, it's, it's tough because I, I'm, I'm not doing it justice, but to anyone listening, uh, Big Green, uh, there's a lot of drawbacks, but, uh, you know, it all depends on how you look at that. Um, there's a lot of opportunities out there. And if you are willing to look it up and be proactive, you'll find you can find the right opportunity for yourself. Yeah, I've always kind of talked to people uh, just from my enlisted time when people talk about joining and stuff like that and they, they come to me and they ask me about it and I'm always like, I tell them like you know when you're joining like don't join asking what the military is uh, going to do for you or like set up all the goals for how many boxes they're going to check because if you do that you're going to end up upset you're going to end up yeah. disappointed but if you think about it it's like these opportunities do exist and when they pop up you can be excited about them but not expecting them it kind of like makes it a more of a positive more of a journey if you will or an adventure rather than uh, some linear uh way of well, brian you, you've been at this for a long time too basically and it, the military is not unlike med school which is not unlike life people that have a positive attitude that are continuing to look for opportunities somehow get them it's, there's no secret if you knock on doors if you have a positive attitude if you're taking care of the things you can take care of for residency, for getting into med school, for getting a job after. It is the same. And the military is not that different. Mm -hmm. I would definitely agree with that. It's just constantly out there asking the questions, talking to the right people and, you know, seeing uh, what you can do to make your situation better. I guess uh, another question kind of in line with that is well, what kind of recommendations would you give um, medical students like myself that are going to be entering or we're getting ready to apply to the match here very, very soon. We're starting auditions, uh, you know, doing all those things to try and match in the specialty we want. So on a broad scale, regardless of specialty, like uh, what are the sure, recommendations sure. you would give us? So thankfully, so I, I, I do teach at the, uh, at my, at my um, med school I went to, so I get to talk about this one a, a few. Um, if you're I mean, going into fourth year, this one's a little late, but I, I tell all, all people going into third year get letters as early as possible. Um, for some reason, every August, they're like, man, I got plenty of time. I'll get them letters later. And sure enough, come April, like, oh, man, I may be short a few letters. Uh, anytime I think a med student can feel like they have a meaningful enough relationship with a mentor to warrant a strong letter of recommendation, they should ask for it. Med students also seem to think that they need to have three letters in their field of specialty. Uh, this is conjecture on my part, but I've been, I've seen a few things in my life. You need at least one letter in your field. You are much better served to at least one letter and the other two letters being strong letters from whoever. Strong letters will be that, that, the, the uh, specialty. And, um, 
With respect to research is another question I get often. Um, research does matter to an extent. It should not be a negative um, aspect. Um, med students get a little up in their heads because they feel like they're not doing meaningful research, but calm down, like it's not that serious. It's really hard for med students to do research at any institution. It's hard for residents to do research at any institution. For residents to do meaningful research, they have to take an entire year off of residency. And so just because your, re your research isn't like earth shattering, that's okay. You don't even have to do a lot because um, eventually you'll see this on, on the back end, but like an heiress package, like all of this, all these thousands of hours of efforts will be a little packet, right? And the research is going to be on there. And you need to be able to put something on there. And obviously you should know about it so you can talk about it. But what you don't want is that the spot to be blank. Because it's just something that makes you look different from the others. Because the other thing you got to you have to remember, so I trained at a small program. We took two residents a year. We would get about 200 applicants. We'd interview about 60. And so to get, how do you get down to that 60? Well, you can do a few things. You know, obviously people used to use scores. Those are be going away here in a few years, but they would do things like discriminators. So no, no research, buy. No volunteering, buy. So you don't want to have those negative discriminators. Um, same thing for volunteering. Um, you don't got to volunteer like crazy, but get like one or three. And if you can't squeeze out, like you only have to go for one hour. If you can't squeeze that out, you're not, you're not owning this process. But take control of the things you can control. You know, get those letters when you think you can get letters. Um, do a little bit of research. Do a little bit of volunteering. You know what the what you know what's in that package. Make the best package you can. Obviously, get the best board scores you can. But once that's done, that's done. Mm -hmm. um, other thing I would talk about with letters. Um, it's kind of a weird thing in the American medical system, but the best places to learn are the crappiest places to get letters. Because if you go to an academic program, so if you're the third year med student, that means there's a fourth year med student ahead of you, an intern, a junior resident, a senior resident, maybe a chief resident. And now you have the attending. <laughs> so you are six, six levels down the line. And you'd be like, Hey, Mr. Dr. So-and-so, will you write me a letter? And like, honestly, if they're a good attending, they'll know your name, but the likelihood of you having any meaningful um, significant interaction is low. And so, uh, you know, this is focused on osteopathic medical students. And, you know, a lot of us train in the community, which has pluses and minuses. And I think a lot of it's a lot of pluses. And one of the biggest benefits is the ability for you to build a significant rapport with your attending so you can get that letter. Mm -hmm. But you got to ask. True. And I, I think we had talked about this uh, in my personal situation as well, where I've, I kind of felt challenged by that starting out, especially because I know a lot of uh, my uh, fellow colleagues, medical students are kind of in this hiccup phase where we've been, we've been doing all of this preparation. We've had everything together and then COVID hit right as we are transitioning to our dedicated board study time. And then a lot of us got pulled out of rotations. And then when we returned to rotations, it was limited. And we were told we couldn't do this, or there were things that you couldn't do that. And so like we became challenged in, who do we ask for a letter of recommendation? And were there even really meaningful interactions with that? And so I, I think that has created challenges that I think all of us are trying to find creative solutions to. Like I talked with you, I don't, I don't, I don't have a rotation in anesthesiology, and you know I'm applying to anesthesiology, <laughs> and so I, my challenge is how do I get a letter of recommendation, and 
um, anesthesiology when I haven't been able to actually rotate in that specialty or spend significant amounts of time with an anesthesiologist to get that letter, you know? So I, I think that's it's a unique challenge that we're facing as third year students. Well, and that's, and I, and I do think there's going to be mitigating circumstances, right? And like people are going to understand. And if that's mm -hmm. the case for any student, all you can ever do is recognize your situation and what's the best you can do. The best you can do is, okay, I can't get my, I, I need an anesthesia letter. I can't do that. What's the next best. If I get three strong letters, mm -hmm. that just demonstrate me and uh, people are going to understand because uh, the benefit that you have is you are not special. Everyone in your class and across this nation, they've had the same issues. Right. So um, don't beat yourself up too bad. You're going to be all right. I certainly hope so. I'm knocking on wood left and right. It, but, you know, I'm already working on all of it. <laughs> so I guess the next question would be uh, as if you can think back to the time when you were an intern or you were transitioning into your first year of residency, what is something you wish you knew um, if you could turn back time? Oh, I, I, not even just as an intern or as a resident, but this applies to med students too. Like have faith in yourself. It's going to be okay. Uh, I think, I do believe that our education system is flawed in the sense that everything is so high stakes uh, and because it's so high stakes, we put disproportionate amount of stress on ourselves. And that, that forces us to do well. But the likelihood is if you look at everything you did to get to where you're at, the likelihood of you succeeding is, is fine. You're going to do fine. Um, but you can give yourself a few less ulcers about it. <laughs> I guess you would consider that kind of a pitfall um, <laughs> of anybody who's going into I I think that's just true in general, right? Anybody who chose to go to medical school already kind of holds themselves to a higher standard of achievement and uh, yeah. doing well. And we should expect that out of physicians anyways. But uh, I think that would be kind of a, of a pitfall. Are there any other pitfalls that uh, you've seen that uh, we should probably avoid or just being a military officer in general? Well, I think uh, with respect to... To HPSP and being an officer, right? I think, and not to disparage my colleagues in the med corps, but sometimes us physicians, we get so spun up in just being docs that we kind of slack on everything else. I mean, we're not Marines. We're not like Marines first, physicians second. We really are pretty much physicians first, but you got to take care of other things. And, and it will nip you in the bud. The, the modern armed forces, and this isn't just for for the army, the air force and the Navy are the same way. You, you got to take care of your weight. You got to take care of your, um, your PME, mm -hmm. take care of the, at least the minimum basics, because unfortunately there have been careers of promising clinicians that can at least if they may not get completely sidetracked, but they can make it a complete pain in your butt. If you just don't do the modicum and the reality is, I have no sympathy for physicians that cannot do the minimum standard because when you actually look at, you know, the APFT or even the new ACFT, you know, yeah, to max it out, you, you got to basically be Rambo. But if you can't meet that minimum standard, then I don't know what you're doing. I mean, you, you signed up for this, um, meet them halfway, 
do that 135 pound deadlift, but um, own it. I mean, if, if, if you can, if I can summarize everything I've talked about with respect to, to medical school and even being an officer, take accountability for your actions, own your career. No one cares about your medical career like you do. No one cares about your army career like you do. And that is not just clinical care, unfortunately, as an officer. If you don't like it, do your four get out. Until then, you're going you're gonna to save yourself a lot of heartache. If you just keep your weight in check, check your boxes, do your CBTs, do your PME. All right. I think uh, it's a good motto in general for life anyways. It's just keeping up with everything and being well-rounded. I think there is a quote, of course, I can't remember it right now. It's something from uh, Theodore Roosevelt where he kind of talked <laughs> about that that mindset of being well-rounded. He was like, it's good to be something along the lines of it's good to be a, a smart man. And it's good to be a red man. But if you're um, at the same time, if you're not taking care of yourself physically, you're not a well-rounded man. You're not, you haven't truly brought yourself whole because of you, you created this very lopsided individual. And so it's balancing well, those two well, things. Well, you got me. And I guess to kind of go back to talking about as an intern or a resident, right. And I think I did a good job of this, but when I talk to med students and new interns now, that accountability transfers to that too, because it's okay not to know stuff. Mm-hmm. One of the only things that will set me off on med students or interns is like, if you don't know, just say you don't know. Like if they come at me and start saying complete nonsense, like, dude, like, what are you like? That's not true at all. Like I actually know what I'm talking about. Like, stop. If you don't know, just say you don't know. That's fine. If, I, if you don't know completely, the, an- the, the answer, if you didn't know anything, but you would say, like, I don't know, but I do know this. Because hopefully at your third or fourth year level, you know something at least s- somewhat related. Okay, mm-hmm. I don't know the specific answer to that, but I do know this. And I can, I, I will go look that up. Mm-hmm. That is an accountable answer versus, like, just spitting hot garbage. Do you think the attending doesn't know that you're spitting hot garbage? Like, he <laughs> like, doesn't know how that works at all. If you don't know, that's fine. But the better answer to I don't know is I don't know, but this is what I know. and. Thanks for that opportunity. And I'm going to go look it up. That is someone who is taking ownership of their career and is like going the right direction. And it's, it's crazy because it's all about mindset because it's literally the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the same foundation of like, Oh, I don't know. And Hey, I get caught in stuff. I don't know all the time, which is why I empathize, but I don't know something, but as a, that's why it matters so much. Cause if I don't know, the answer isn't like, I oh, guess I don't know. The answer is I don't know. And I'm going to go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. All right. So I guess before we wrap this up, the last question I kind of wanted is just any anecdote you wanted to share from your career, your favorite duty station you've been at, or your favorite operation you've been a part of, like picking out one of those and just uh, walking us through it. Because I always find that's the, uh, well, in the Navy, we, we call them sea stories, but I guess I, I don't know what we really My favorite's a sea story. Brian, have I not told you I'm basically the luckiest man alive? Our couples <laughs> match in the op, in the op, though, in anesthesia. I married a great woman. But the biggest thing is I mobilized in 2009 as an Air Force officer on Operation Continuing, Continuing Promise 2009. It was a very tough mobilization where I spent 120 days providing or supporting the provision of healthcare in Haiti, Dominican Republic, Antigua, Colombia, Nicaragua, and Panama. 
Wow. So uh, a few months on the ship, I'm a shellback and uh, did all that stuff. I'm jealous. I don't even have a shellback. We got so close, <laughs> but never actually made it. That was one of the biggest regrets of uh, leaving the Navy was I never got my shell back. But uh, yeah, it was great. The, again, like that was one of those opportunities that, that fell from the sky. And it's a long story I'll tell you about sometime offline. But um, <laughs> take advantage. Of, the military has some negatives. But uh, for me, uh, the opportunities have always vastly outweighed the negatives. And they're going to have to kick me out here in a, probably a few decades. But uh, it's uh, it's been a great ride for me. And, um, yeah, if anyone has any questions, um, you know, you can reach out to Brian and you can provide my contact info. And uh... All right. Perfect. All right. So that wraps up our episode with uh, Dr. Cuevas today. Thank you so much for your time sharing your experiences with us, future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.